Uh, you maybe have seen these stools, and maybe you uh, had heard what we were going to do today, but if not, um, we are having something that we do occasionally. I think the last time we did this was at some point last year, maybe a year and a half ago. We call it Ask Anything, and essentially what we do is rather than there being a prepared sermon, uh, we try to come with hopefully just prepared hearts, and you ask the questions, and we'll try to answer them. And so you can see on the screen there, uh, that is a phone number that you can send questions to. Uh, we would love for you, you don't normally hear this in church, but go ahead and get out your phone and uh, send us a text message if you have a question or questions, and really anything goes. These could be uh, theology-type questions, these could be questions from the Bible, they could be questions about our church, uh, they could be personal questions, uh, whatever you want to ask. Uh, our team uh, is going to try to uh, help us answer as many of those questions as we can. So I want to introduce you to the folks that we have here. Again, I'm Luke Simmons. I'm the lead pastor here. Seth Trout is part of our preaching team and leads our adult uh, ministry. So a number of ministries that all uh, relate to adults are under his leadership. This is Matthew Brazelton. Matthew, uh, you may not know this. Many people think of him as a worship leader because that's kind of how you experience him. But his main job is he's actually our pastor of operations. So all of the stuff related to facilities and finance and administration is all the stuff that he works on. And then Josh Watt down here at the end is also part of our preaching team and he oversees NextGen. So all the different ministries that go from birth through college. And so together we're gonna try to be as helpful as we can. Now here's, uh, I have a couple, I have three things to remember and then one request, all right? And then we'll dive into questions. So I don't see a lot of you texting questions. This is going to be really late, lousy if there are no questions coming in. Or if you just get to breakfast faster, I guess. So that's up to you. Um, so here's the first thing to remember is that 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, tells us that some things are of first importance. Did you see that in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to all these different people. That is of first importance. What, what that means is everything in the Bible is true, and I think you could say everything in the Bible is important because it's breathed out by God, but it's not all equally important according to the Apostle Paul. So the closer it is to the heart of the gospel, the more important it is. And so we're going to answer some questions today that might be related to things that are of first importance, and then we'll try to also answer questions that aren't necessarily of the same level of importance. But I just think it's really key that we understand not everything's equally important. The closer it is to the gospel, the more important it is. Here's a second thing to remember, is that we grow through tension. Who likes tension? <laughs> Some of you sick people do, but, but most people do not like tension. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, and yet, here's what I know, is you would, if you were to look back in your life, the ways you've grown emotionally, the ways you've grown spiritually, the ways you've grown relationally have almost always come through tension. And so there might be some moments today where you feel some tension, and that's actually an okay thing. We want you to lean into it and invite the Lord into that because we think that's how the Lord will help us grow. So we grow through tension. Here's the third thing, is try to consider our questions the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Okay, so if there's a question that you ask and you're not thrilled with how that question got answered, let what we said begin the conversation, don't let it end it. And if you wanna continue to talk more afterward, we'll all be up in the front left of the room and we'd love to help answer and push into those questions further. All right, does that make sense? You with me? All right, so those are three reminders. Here's one request. Please give us grace. We don't know what's coming. 
Uh, we've tried to prepare our hearts as well as we can. We're going to try to answer questions with as much scripture and as much wisdom as we can. But give us grace. We're, we're on the fly here. So that's kind of what makes this fun. All right? So I'm going to ask Josh if you would pray for us, sure. and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. You gotta, if you were here and on this stage, you'd have every answer. God, more than that, you'd have a, a father's heart, a savior's passion. God, the sage's wisdom. You'd have it all, and you'd know every person in this room and the motivation behind every question, God. So we don't uh, come to this moment thinking that any human can fill your role or step into the spot that is alone for you. You are God, we are not, and yet there are questions that we need answers to, questions that you might not give us answers to, questions that are really uh, messing with us in certain ways, questions that come from pain, questions that come from a desire to know you more, God. So questions are good. Uh, people who ask questions are good. Tension is good, God. So help us to just uh, be faithful in this moment. Help uh, us up here to be helpful with our answers. And God, more than that, be a reflection of you. God, more than just uh, your mind, but your heart, God, and your care. So thank you for your care for this church over this past year. God, this is a sweet just time to reflect and to be here as a church looking back on a great year, God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. All right, so we have a first question. Why should we pray when we already know that God's plan is sovereign? Do our prayers really change the outcome of God's perfect plan? Boy, that's a good question. Uh, I, whoever's asking that, you're not the first and you won't be the last person to ask that. That's a really good one. Um, Seth, I'll have you take this because you taught a class this year on prayer, uh, one of our most popular classes actually we did as a church. And so I imagine that question came up through that. Why don't you take it? Yeah, so when we talk about God's plan being sovereign, his ruling and reigning over all things, it's important that we don't fall into the trap of fatalism, which is um, actually a Greek thought. It's not a biblical thought. That's what will be will be. Um, it's just kind of real deterministic. Nothing matters. What will happen will happen type of thinking. And a lot of people misunderstand uh, reform theology or understand, misunderstand the sovereignty of God as being this kind of fatalistic determinism that's actually unbiblical and could be considered actually a heresy. And so the way that God models and reveals himself to us in the scriptures is one who's a person who's responsive and listens. And so we see that um, all the way back in the book of Exodus. Multiple times Moses is praying, um, God, please do this, please do this, please do this. And God really seems to consider his words and then act as a response to his word. And so uh, response to Moses' word. And so Moses is appealing to God's character, and God listens and interacts. And so it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan, but what it does mean is that God has decided to work in response to the freely offered prayers of his people. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to worship the God as he's revealed himself in scriptures, that includes us recognizing that he's a person who's involved and listening and attentive and close. And that he somehow, in the midst of his perfectly ruling over all things, decides to work through our prayers. And so he's both over history, Lord over it, but he's also decided to reveal himself as inside of it as a person who's attentive and who's listening. And so at most, um, our prayers really change the outcome of God's perfect plan um, in the sense that he's a person who's listening and he's connected and he's a father who has a father's heart for his children. Um, but whether you talk about it changing his like outside of history plan, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but either way, God decides to work through our prayers and so our prayers matter. Yeah. Great. All right. Next question. 
Outside of God and the scriptures, what or who has most influenced you guys this year? Hmm. That's a good question. Oh, boy. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Um, I'll start, and then I'll let you guys uh, answer as well. Um, So probably um, going through a cohort with a number of other redemption pastors this year, uh, going through a book by Paul Miller called A Praying Life, um, and one of the folks that's on the the ministry team that Paul leads is a guy named John Ori, and John uh, led Seth and myself and Joshua Reese, and I think a couple of you guys are in a prayer cohort with him right now, and it was uh, doing a lot of actually what our men's and women's groups are going to be doing this spring of just uh, building relationship with God through prayer, and so I think that by far uh, had the biggest impact and uh, changed and influenced my life this year, the combination of that book with uh, those relationships and and John uh, as a kind of mentor in that process was really great. So what'd you say? Gosh, Jesus, I guess, uh, the church answer. It says outside of God in the scripture. Uh, So a recent one is George H.W. Bush. Since his uh, passing, I've been watching a lot of stuff about him and reading a lot of stuff. And it's just crazy uh, how well he's spoken of in his passing in light of our current political climate. And I've just been taken back by just how encouraging he was. And I don't remember him. He was president when I was a little kid, so I don't remember his presidency at all. But uh, lately it's been that, which seems odd, but I've been just eating up everything I can about his life and how he lived. Um, And then the other one, probably my last uh, kid, Ozzy, just came after kind of a painful season. We didn't expect uh, or really we're trying to have more kids, and it's just been kind of a year of blessing and joy and lots of smiles and kind of a reminder of all those scriptures about God's close to the children and the children's heart is close to the kingdom of God and I see it right there in my own house so George H.W. Bush and Ozzy Watt are my two. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Go ahead. Um, yeah this is a great question I think one of the things that's significantly influenced me is I've, for the last two years or so, been meeting with kind of a ministry coach. You could call him a coach. You could call him a counselor. You could call him a spiritual director. I don't know. He's a former pastor that helps pastors in our stage of life kind of figure it out. So um, that's been a huge blessing. In particular, he's helped me kind of discern a bit of uh, just things that were going on in my heart that I, that I couldn't really figure out. Um, and do that in light of the scriptures and in light of the biblical story. And I think the most significant kind of piece of that process has been learning to relate to God as a person. So it it gets back to that last question, um, with whom we have a relationship, and that actually God designed our transformation interpersonally and with him to be a relational experience, Um, that that knowledge alone doesn't change our hearts. Um, It's actually relating to others who are living in the way of Jesus or relating to Jesus himself. So that's been really significant for me. Mine is the same as Luke's, this prayer cohort thing. So <laughs> I know it's cheap, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. All right, next question. What is your best advice for how to deal with an easily angered spouse that says hurtful things in those moments? Mm. First, I guess I just want to say, um, I'm, I'm guessing whatever, that, that's not a theoretical question, that's a real question. And so, uh, mostly I would want to say to you asking, I'm sorry, and I know that stinks. Um, and uh, anybody want to? 
take this one? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, probably a number of follow-up questions that would help answer this question better, but um, I think you need to find a safe person that you trust that you can share with kind of the situation yeah. more in detail, a pastor or a counselor, and, and get their input and their reactions. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a situation like this, it's hard to really know what's right. It's hard to know up from down, left from right. And so meeting with somebody else that knows you, that you're able to be honest and, and transparent with can be a great first step. Would you add anything, Seth? I know that in your counseling ministry, this is something that's come up a lot this year. Yeah, I think the most important thing is, I mean, long-term is to have additional eyes on your relationship who can help speak into it. Uh, people have a lot of training and helping diffuse some of that. I think like in the moment, as much as you can be a non-anxious presence and be able to talk through things strategically, like there's a wisdom and strategy to it, but if this is going on long-term, it can, uh, and it becomes a pattern that the anger is used to control and manipulate. There's a, you know, potential for that being and becoming a really abusive or oppressive situation. And so um, if you're the person who's exploding in anger, like you don't struggle with anger, that probably means that you're unrepentant and you need to deal with serious stuff. You know, for the person who's being exploded at, I just want to encourage you to talk to someone about it who can know you and see you and um, hopefully provide some professional coaching through that. All right, next. If I was, it's so hard to see over Sorry. your big head. You're so tall. <laughs> got to sit you down at the end next time. If I was baptized as a child, do I need to get rebaptized as an adult? How do I know when I'm ready to get baptized? Great. Why, you want to take that? So first question, the answer is uh, no, not necessarily. That's kind of a personal thing that you need to work through with uh, your parents or pastors. Um, I don't really have a flinch. It's kind of a case-by-case -case scenario. Um, a lot of times the way faith works is, at least with young people, it's a series of moments that kind of after the fact you look back on and say, oh, there was all these kind of dominoes falling in my life. And then it's usually like when you really kind of own your faith down the road, they're like, okay, now I want to get baptized. That was less real. And that may be the case, but it may just be you had the amount of faith you had at that moment, and you were genuinely repentant and trusting in Jesus in that moment. So, uh, so it's a, mostly a no on that first question. How do I know when I'm ready to get baptized? I can let someone else answer this, but it's, I guess I'll take it next year. And it's a lot of times young people, um, with young people, the answer is difference it's nuanced compared to an adult person coming in here because kids are intentionally influenced easily especially by their parents that's how God designed childhood to work to be this kind of easily influenced people so that we could influence them towards the right thing that being said they also aren't necessarily standing on their own convictions quite yet and it's this kind of weird season so if I abandon the faith just I punted on faith and I left the pastor and all this and went to a non-Christian place of worship would my kids go probably and would they kind of buy in probably because they love me and they look up to me and I'm their dad uh, so you got to kind of figure out when kids have really owned this faith that is their parents and now been passed down to them and it's just it's the age we kind of gave is 12 is a good time to start to think, but maybe 12 and kind of into the teen years is when we start to kind of encourage kids to more think about.
being baptized. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, that's kind of the next gen. Yeah, I think what I'd add, really that second question, is if you're an adult, you're ready to get baptized when you've put your faith in Jesus, when you've trusted in him to forgive your sins, when you've said, I'm going to repent and I'm going to put my hope in him, you're ready. There's not more you have to do. There aren't extra works you have to do before you kind of clean yourself up enough to get baptized. Baptism is that picture of entering into the community of faith by faith in Christ. So if you're an adult, that's the answer. If you're a kid, the answer is when your parents say you can and you're ready. If you're a parent, you go, how do I know if my kid's ready? Uh, What I would encourage you to say is um, when you feel confident that they have enough freedom in their life that they could walk away from the faith if they wanted to, but they don't want to, they're probably ready at that point. And, uh, and if they want to, if you're pushing them to get baptized, they're not ready. Yeah. So, uh, next one. When someone loses a loved one and that person didn't know Jesus, what can I say to offer them hope and or encouragement? Man, yeah, that's a tough... That's a tough situation. Um, That's not uncommon. Um, I think all of us have participated in funerals where that's the case. Um, Seth, do you want to take that? (laughs) Uh, So in uh, the King James, Jesus uh, gives a, a parable that it's called about the parable of Abraham's bosom. And it's about this man who passed away. And he wishes he could come back and tell his loved ones um, to repent um, before it's too late. And so there's kind of like this heart here behind, like, um, that we can know with certainty the people who have passed away, what they want the people who are living to hear, and that's Mm -hmm. to repent and believe in Jesus. And so when I've done funerals in the past for people who passed away who are not Christians, what I will typically say is, what we know is the deceased person wants you to know uh, that Jesus loves you and that he um, wants you to repent and believe and trust in him. And so I will tend to kind of, a, by virtue of Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, as the way ESV talks about it, there's a parable. That's kind of the way that I will typically approach it. Um, the other thing is um, we can think that the person didn't know Jesus, but we can't really know for certainty these things. And so... Well, we don't want to, we never want to just kind of blow smoke and flatter and give people assurance of salvation who don't have it. Uh, there also is a sense in which, I mean, we don't think he was a Christian, and if that's the case, then uh, they're not in a better place, they're in a worse place. Um, but they might be, and we can pray that God might have worked in their life in a way we didn't see, or that there's a seed there. And so there's some measure of, we don't know for certain, but we can prayerfully hope. Uh, This is, I think, part of what it means to not be someone's judge, to recognize that God is the judge and that I can observe on the outside, but I can't really observe on the inside. God knows the heart. And so that's not a ton of hope or encouragement possibility, but I think the main thing is I want to point people to the way in which the deceased person was a faithful image bearer of God to some extent. All people um, point us to Jesus somehow, and even if they died in unrepentance, um, they still somehow glorified God. So that's... uh, I think the main thing I would avoid in the situation is just saying, well, we know they're in a better place. And it's like, well, we don't. And we can hope that's the case. And we can pray that's the case. But we don't know that. So we don't want to be falsely optimistic. And we also don't want to be um, totally pessimistic and pretend that we know all things and we know for certain what's going on. So there's a 
there's a balance there. I think the main thing that someone who has someone pass away needs is not answers, but they probably need just proximity. They need a relationship. They need you to grieve with them and be with them and sit with them and and uh, be there for them over the long haul as their grief comes and goes and comes and goes. More than they need kind of a Bible answer, they probably just need your presence and love and care. Yeah, I'd also say the hope in any difficult situation like this is the goodness of God. I think that's the hope that you have to offer. And um, when it feels like the idea of God being good conflicts with our understanding of reality at the moment, we choose by faith to trust that God is good. All right, next question. Is redemption somehow, is redemption involved somehow in helping migrants or asylum seekers at the border? Um, the answer to that is, uh, I'll take that. The answer to that is um, not officially in terms of as an organization, but many people in redemption are involved in that. And a few of us uh, have gotten involved in that recently. And really, there's an amazing opportunity. I don't know if you've seen some of the articles that have been out just recently, even in the last few days in the Arizona Republic, but um, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, right? They are actually asking Christians and churches to uh, be host families because folks will come to the border, um, they'll claim asylum, the ICE will, ICE will process that for however long that takes, and then these families need to get to some sort of loved one who is in the United States and who is buying them a bus ticket. Well, they need somewhere to stay for like 24 to 48 hours in the meantime. And so ICE, get this, the government is asking churches, would you be host families for these people? Answer, yes, <laughs> we would. Um, that's absolutely good news. It's an incredible opportunity to welcome people who are in an incredibly difficult situation into your home uh, and to love and to encourage them. And so there are a number of people in redemption uh, at our congregation and at other congregations who are doing that, um, serving our country and serving the Lord by blessing these people. And so if you'd like to do that, you can contact me and we can get you involved in that. If you say, I couldn't really host people, but I'd wanna help meet some needs, uh, we could also uh, help you figure out how to do that as well. So um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty neat opportunity right now. Next. How do you heal your heart from a broken past? Even after giving everything to God and asking for forgiveness, how do you get rid of the hurt? Good, hard question. Somebody want to take it? I could start us off. Okay. I mean, this is a deep question, but I, I think if I were to summarize the experience that I've, that I've gone through, it's going back and grieving and reliving the brokenness and the hurt with God. So in, with what you know about who God is and his relational presence in your life, it's revisiting the hurt and pain with him and being honest about it and grieving and not trying to stuff it or hide it, but just experience it in his presence and his presence heals you. And it can take time, it can take years, it can take a lifetime. Um, but that's kind of the pathway that I've experienced, so. I'd say on, on top of that, it's finding a safe person or a safe community to share your story with. I think part of it is like, if I have things in my past that I like, theoretically believe God forgives me for, but functionally, I don't really know what that looks like. And then I tell Luke about it, and Luke still, Luke sees me and accepts me and loves me even after knowing those things about me. Um, me experiencing Luke um, 
is almost a way of me helping understand the way that God feels about me. And so uh, experiencing being seen and still loved, I think that's our deepest fear, is being known and therefore unloved. But if I can find a safe person who can know me and still love me in the middle of my mess, that's, I think, redemptive uh, biologically and spiritually. It's a way that we can grow and be healed is to be seen and still be accepted. So find a safe person to share that story with. I was listening to a podcast, a pastor I love that went through depression and anxiety. Um, and he said, we want God to be a genie, especially when we're in pain. Like, and he said, God is not a genie. What he uses is time. And it was just like I know that, but the way he said it made sense more than a lot of stuff I've heard about pain and suffering and just how long it takes. But God uses time as he works as your heavenly father, restoring you. The word salvation is a holistic salvation. He's restoring all things. We just sang that song. He makes all things new. How does he make it new? He's not a genie, so he doesn't snap and fix it, but he uses time. And that's, if you're not a Christian, there's no hope there. But if you are a Christian, you know there's an end date to that time, that already but not yet waiting of full restoration. So um, just, just time, which is really hard, yeah. but he, God uses time. I'm going to say one more thing, and I'm not supposed to do this. <laughs> okay. but part of it, too, is uh, you may never get rid of the hurt. Hmm. You know, the, the memories are there. The realities are there. Uh, and so just hoping to forget about stuff is not really, like, the way forward. And so if your goal is just forget about things, that's not really even a biblical way. Like, even in Paul in, like, Philippians 3, remembers all the bad stuff he did, but he's able to say but I press on forward because um, to live is Christ, to die is is gain. And so even depending on what the hurt is, you heal differently. Like if I get the flu and I heal from the flu, then I'm back to the way I was. But if I have my leg chopped off and then I heal from that, I'm still missing a leg. (laughs) There's like a new normal situation. And so healing and moving past looks different depending on what the hurt was and depending on what the brokenness was. That's great. All right, next question. How can I best manage a close friendship with a person that chooses a homosexual lifestyle? How would you go about explaining this topic to your young children? That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll take part of it. I'll start it, as Matthew says. Um, (laughs) To your young children, so my oldest is eight, down to one. Um, And we've had this talk because my oldest son loves Ellen, the show Ellen, and she talks about her wife a lot. So um, just as it gets brought up in school and media and TV, we kind of talk about it and say, uh, well, this is what the Bible says. This is how uh, this person's choosing to live. Um, I think it just gets wonky and weird if you kind of camp out on a few things to really harp on your kids about as far as what's right and what's wrong. We, we have that conversation about a lot of things, about generosity, about selfishness, about... So it's in the spectrum of a rebellion against God's way of life uh, the way it should look. So um, we've had the talk with our oldest, our six-year-old as well. It's, you know, kids, it's hard because they're so black and white, they lose nuance. So it, me and my wife pray through it a lot, like, okay, how do we say this so he doesn't go and spit this out somewhere in a really <laughs> hurtful way? But we still, we don't want to withhold anything, especially as he's uh, being uh, exposed to it. So that's my stab. Yeah, I, I guess a big thing for me would be, um, as it relates to the first question would be, is the, is the friend professing to know Jesus Christ, professing to have a relationship with him, that would change it to some degree. If they aren't, um, well, then 
I'd manage that friendship the way I would manage any friendship with someone that doesn't know the Lord, which is to try to love them and encourage them to believe in Christ and to turn from sin. Because really the issue is not what do you believe about sexuality, it's what do you believe about Jesus? Did he rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, that kind of changes everything, and now we have to align our lives to what Jesus said. So if someone does not profess to know Christ, I'm not going to try to hold them to a Christian standard. Um, they don't even claim to have it. If someone is professing to be a Christian, that changes that a bit and makes it where uh, homosexuality might be a topic I would bring up a bit more often. Um, the other thing I, I think would be interesting to do is um, ask a lot of questions about it. Not judgy kind of lawyer trying to lead you down the trail to, ah, I gotcha kind of questions, but how did, you, how did you figure out that that's how you were attracted? When did that start? How young were you? What is that like? Was it a good experience? Was it a bad experience? I think uh, talking about it in a way that isn't attacking but is actually curious um, because that is something that for somebody in a homosexual lifestyle, that's a big deal to them. And for you to enter in with actual curiosity about that experience doesn't mean you're affirming it, but it does mean you're gaining understanding. And I think the Lord might even use some additional insights from that experience to help you as you love and, and uh, speak the truth to them. So um, those are a few thoughts I have. Uh, one, other, one other thing. Oh, that'll be a good one. Uh, going back to the last question, though, as it relates to the kids, one thing I would say is uh, help your kids and your grandkids know the biblical story. Help them know the real thing. Because when they know that, then they'll be able to go, oh, wait, but that doesn't fit. That doesn't, that's not in line. Yeah. And you'll have to do a lot less, hey, that's bad, that's bad, because they'll just see it, because they know the, the true story. All right, how should I respond to an invitation to a same-sex wedding? Um, can I start that one? Yeah. I'll start that one. Uh, and it, again, I, the main thing I would say is it really depends. Who's the invitation from? Is it from a child? Is it from a brother? Is it from someone at work? How well do you know them? How well do they know you? How well do they know where you stand on uh, uh, a biblical view of sexuality? Um, so I think a lot depends. I, I know some people would like to say it's black or it's white, it's always no or it's always yes. I don't think that that's the case. I, think, uh, I can think of scenarios in which I would attend I can think of a lot of scenarios in which I would not, um, but I hesitate, as you, as you said earlier, Josh, there is nuance in this, and I hesitate to have an overly dogmatic uh, answer, um, partly because all these, question, these kinds of questions are very simple when you're far from them. Yeah. The closer you get to it, and the more it becomes real life, the more you go, ooh, that's not quite as easy as I thought. And so, um, yeah, that's how I'd start it. What would you all add? So Tyler Johnson's our lead, all redemption lead pastor, and he has a quote. Love your neighbor as you love yourself rolls off the tongue poetically. But actually living it out is like walking through a minefield. And the reality is if you want to love people like Jesus loves people, Saying it is easy, and it sounds sweet, and it looks good on a mug and all that. But actually, loving your neighbor as you love yourself is just messy, 
and this is a, just a perfect example as to why it's messy, because if you hold to the biblical standard, you don't agree with that lifestyle, and yet you're also trying to love that person. And like Luke said, there's certain cases where it'd be, I want to go because this reason, this reason, this reason, but then a week later, I don't want to go for this reason, this reason, this reason. You're walking through a minefield and um, have people around you who are also trying to faithfully walk through the same minefield, uh, loving their neighbor, love themselves, and think out loud with them rather than some Christian sitting in a safe place shooting answers from afar. It's... uh, Yeah, I think the prayer to be praying is, Lord, let me make this decision not out of fear, but out of love. Um, There are a lot of voices. There's a lot of people that are watching us. And um, we really want to love the person that's involved and really want to press into and listen to the spirit. So, All right, next question. What are you doing to ensure people don't get lost in the move to the new building? Oh, great. That's a change of direction. Thankfully, uh, it's not very far away. <laughs> oh, like directionally lost? How do I get this right there? Uh, turn left. Thanks, thanks um, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> draw a map or something. Yeah. All right. So uh, ensuring people don't get lost in the move to the new building, new uh, and existing folks. So um, I love that question because that's something that as a team we've been uh, really working on and praying through for a long time. We're doubling the square footage. And our question as a leadership has been, what if everything else had to double? What if we needed to double the number of small groups? What if we needed to double the number of uh, student ministry groups? What if we had to double... uh, you know, all the different people volunteering. And so there's a lot of work that's been done on that because um, our Jesus didn't call us to assemble crowds. He called us to make disciples. And so um, there's a lot of uh, work that is being done on that. Um, volunteer fair is part of that. Um, the more people we have serving, um, again, that volunteer fair is on January 13th. The more people we have serving, the more people don't get lost, and the more people there are to help those who might get lost. Um, But I will say this, it's going to feel different. I was just walking through the the space yesterday with one of our elders, and uh, and you walk in there, and it's like, wow, this is a big room, and this campus feels big, and it feels big. And so there, I just know there will be some people, some of you, who will say, ah, I don't like it anymore. It feels too big. And um, I hope you don't feel that way, but I just know some of you will. And so um, that's okay if you feel that way. What I don't want you to feel is, I really want to be here, but I just feel lost and I can't get anyone to help me or connect with me. That would be uh, something that would break our hearts. So would any of you guys add anything to that as we've planned this? Yeah, I'd say the key is we can't ensure anything. That's kind of, uh, we can do our best to provide clear pathways and help people do it, but I, what, well, I, even like the rooted classes and the start here classes is helping people provide clear pathways for them to get connected. Um, recognizing that what most people experience as being connected to the church is the culture of love that happens in the chairs and in the pews. And so we can provide like organized pathways towards connection, but I think that uh, the main thing is going to be all of us being loving people in the chairs one one conversation at a time. And so um, my main prayer is that we have clear pathways for people, but also we just have a culture of love where people welcome and accept people, and that, that happens in the chairs um, before it even happens in the organized pipelines. Yeah, yeah I'd say that if you know people, you don't get lost. If your connection is with just what happens on the stage, you'll feel more lost. 
So, and that will actually be more of a you problem than a us problem um, because there are those pathways to get connected. So we've got time maybe for a few more if we, if we try to answer semi-quickly. So we'll see what they give us. But next question. Oh, yeah, this would <laughs> be perfect. How does man's free will and God's providence work together in salvation? God remains just no matter what, but does God limit his love by pulling some toward himself and not others? This might be our last question. Um, so Seth and I taught a class on this because we, we dealt with this last year when we went through the book of Ephesians and especially the first part of Ephesians. Uh, the apostle Paul talks quite a bit about election and predestination and so we had a class that Seth and I taught together on that. Um, I've been talking a lot, so Seth, why don't you start it? So I think the key is understanding what free will is. So um, our will is always free. That is, all of our choices we make are uh, real choices. Uh, um, but the recognition that our will is um, broken, meaning that we, on our own, um, God extends this general free call to all people, um, whosoever will come repent and believe, but in our hearts, our wills are corrupt and they're broken. And so we choose the same choice that Adam chose. We chose ourselves. We choose not God. We choose autonomy. We choose freedom from God rather than freedom with God. And so we're always freely making choices. Our will is free. However, um, God sovereignly works in the hearts of some to heal their will. That could be called regeneration. That could be called conversion. Um, it could be called being given a new heart. Um, the will is healed. And so when that happens, Christians have a will that's also free, um, and we can freely choose God. And so we must choose God. We're responsible to choose God. We always choose what we want, but some people have had their hearts healed by God. And so um, the way that it works together is we all make real choices, um, and God providentially heals the hearts of some people unconditionally. That's what unconditional love means. And so that's why we pray for God to heal and save people. It's because we need, people need new hearts in order to be saved. And so um, God's providence and his uh, sovereignty um, reigns and rules over all things. But we, in the middle of that, God decides to work through our freely offered choices and our free, hmm. our free will. And so just like with the prayer question, um, we make free choices. We, make, we have a free will but God works through those freely offered things to bring about his, his uh, sovereignly intended purposes. And so we should never say, uh, God made me choose this, because we always are freely choosing, and the Bible constantly paints a picture of people who are responsible for their choices. At the same time, people who have chosen God say, the only reason I'm able to do that is because God healed my heart. Um, and he is drawing all people towards himself. Why some people get healed hearts and some people don't is... Uh, an impossible question that actually the Bible doesn't answer. In Romans 9, Paul says, who are you, a man, to ask that question? And I go, well, I'm asking it. And he says, some things God doesn't tell us, and you kind of have to make peace with some of that mystery. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of maturity in this question is affirming both. Our choices matter, um, and we didn't choose God until he softened our hearts, and we have to make peace with that tension. I think that's uh, part of maturity in this question. That's great. All right, well, I think we have time for one more. So let's do one last one. Do you have any wild dreams or aspirations on what being a best friend to Queen Creek could look like? Um, so what I would say is my wildest dream would be that somehow the 30 to 40% of our community who are LDS mm. have a radical encounter 
with Jesus through the grace of the gospel. Through our church, or I think even in a wild dream kind of thing, would be a church that got planted by somebody with that kind of background and experience who could really create a church that would be a great fit for people who were potentially leaving an LDS situation. Because if, if, if you come from an LDS background, you know you come in here, it is so different. It's uh, hard. It's challenging to kind of even uh, track with it because it's so different. So I think that's my wildest, my wildest dream is I feel like when we talk about the best friend our community has, most of us, myself included, most of the time are not even thinking about like 40% of our community because we just sort of assume, well, they're kind of just... Nothing's going to happen there. So let's just go to all the pagans, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that would be my dream. If you were going to pray along those ends, um, I would love you to do it because I think um, there's that place where Jesus sends out the disciples to do ministry, and they come back, and they say, it went great, but we couldn't cast out this one demon. And he said, yeah, that one only comes out through fasting and prayer. And it seems like the the ability to really connect with people from an LDS background only comes through the work of God through prayer. So that takes us back to full circle in terms of that first question about prayer. Let's pray that God would give us that kind of opportunity. So, um, yeah, why don't we pray? Matthew, you pray for us. God, we're so grateful that you are not... um you're not unaware of the answers to any questions that our hearts might ask. And we're grateful for the answers that you give and the moments that you say, hey, this is about as far as I can take you. You need to trust me past this point. So God, increase our faith, um, increase our trust in you as a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. God, thanks for your eternal perspective that you see the end from the beginning and um, we can rest in you even in our limited moment here. God, uh, I pray for this next year that you would pour out your spirit on us as your people, that this church would be uh, transformed by the grace and goodness of Jesus. I pray that you would be uh, manifest in our midst and that we would be a light to um, those around us. God, continue the great mission that you began uh, the beginning of time and that you've called us as your people into uh, of, rede- of revealing yourself of redeeming this world um, god we we pray that for your glory and for our joy amen amen